Welcome to a special presentation of Nebraska Farmcast, a podcast with essential information for essential decisions from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Nebraska Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team in the Department of Agricultural Economics is dedicated to providing timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications for Nebraska agricultural decision makers. Each week, our team brings you essential information for your essential decisions in live webinars covering a diverse array of farm and ranch management topics presented by experts from the university, from across the state, and from around the country. This series of podcasts offers audio from these webinars so you can learn on the go. To find a complete archive of all webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more resources, visit the Farm and Ranch Management website at farm.unl.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Larry Van Tassel, head of the Department of Agricultural Economics. Thanks for joining us today. This is part of a series of webinars produced by our Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team that typically runs every Thursday at noon. You can find recordings of these sessions, a schedule of upcoming webinars, and other resources at farm.unl.edu. Events over the last year have driven uh, to the surface long-standing questions concerning the cattle markets and market structure, which have resulted in numerous proposals being offered in Washington, D.C. In response, the Nebraska Farm Bureau created a task force of cattle producers to study current markets and offer policy suggestions and recommendations. Presenting today about these recent market events, responses by producers, the task force's work, and what has been learned about Nebraska's cattle industry is Jay Rempe, senior economist with Nebraska Farm Bureau. A graduate of the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Rempe majored in agribusiness as an undergraduate and earned a master's degree of science in agricultural economics in 1993. As the senior economist at the Nebraska Farm Bureau, he is responsible for agricultural economic outlook, policy analysis, research, and education programs. Welcome, Jay, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Larry. It's, a, it's an honor to be part of this webinar series and, and looking at the, the schedule of the series and some of them that I've sat in on it. It's a really good series and I appreciate the opportunity to, to present this afternoon. Uh, as, as Larry mentioned, I, I'm with Nebraska Farm Bureau. I've been here for a number of years, but most of my career has been spent in the lobbying arena working on issues down at the state capitol in Washington, D.C. And, and I'd like to think that I, I follow finally saw the light and, and uh, emerged from the dark side of the lobbying world, and, and now I'm, I'm trying to shine the light of the economist on, on some of the things that are happening in the world and, and in agriculture. And so today, I'll talk a little bit more about this, but I want to talk a little bit about what's been happening in the cattle markets over the last year, year and a couple months, and, and talk a little bit about a farm organization's response and, and maybe share some insight and some in inroads into uh, how different organizations uh, tackle these kinds of issues when they arise. I always like to, uh, to start with this quote from Lyndon Johnson. He, was always, he always had some really good quotes. 
But uh, oftentimes, as an economist, when you're talking about uh, uh, economics, uh, a lot of people don't think it's too exciting. And he, he likened uh, to giving a speech on economics about uh, it's a lot like pissing down your leg. It seems hot to you, but it never does to anyone else. And uh, I hope with this audience today that it's being sponsored by the Ag Economics Department that uh, maybe, maybe there'll be a little more excitement today than normal with a normal audience. Uh, what I what I want to try to do is I want to tackle four things. First, I, I, I want to talk about the the shocks that occurred to the cattle markets over the last year, the number of responses that that uh, that generated uh, both from members and our producers in, in Nebraska, but also from the political side of things, from elected officials and other organizations. Talk a little bit about how we responded to that by creating a task force and then discuss a little bit some of the issues and recommendations and why I thought this might be of interest oftentimes uh, uh, in the, the business world. Uh, when they respond to some shocks and, and things that happen, they're looking at their shareholders and their markets and how do they protect them and, and how do they move forward. In the academic circles, you're obviously looking and doing research and analyzing the data and, and, and putting forth the, uh, what you find in, in recommendations in that regard. In, in the, the nonprofit farm organization world, it's a little different. Of course, we have our shareholders that are our members and we're trying to respond to their needs, but we're working in the political world too. So we're trying to look at what, what the reality is and we're trying to set the stage for what might what could happen in the future. And so it's a little different world that we operate in. And I thought it might be of some interest to know kind of how we, we operate in that world. So real quick, just for those that don't know about Nebraska Farm Bureau, uh, we are the state's largest farm organization. We celebrated a hundred years a couple of years ago. We're all across the state. We're a general farm organization in the sense that we represent all commodities and, and livestock. And uh, one of, you can see that at the bottom of my slide, we, we, our goal or our mission is to be the trusted voice for farm and ranch families. And so we, our job, a main part of our job anyway, is to represent their interests both in Lincoln and in Washington, D.C. A key point though I wanna make though is the positions that we take on issues are all determined by our members. Uh, we have a very elaborate process that we use to try to figure out how we arrive at those positions, but they're all determined by our members. And so myself, when I was lobbying or other members uh, of our leadership team, we have no, we provide information to that process, but ultimately it's, it's them that make those decisions. And you can see I've listed some of the issues that we work on just to give you a, a sense, taxes, water, uh, uh, broadband issues on the state side, and obviously farm programs and trade and some others on the national side. Oh, was a couple of pictures I forgot to put up. So let's take a step back. Probably many of you that are on this are familiar with what's occurred in the cattle markets over the last year, but let, just to recap a little bit. Uh, first, last August, um, I think it was August 9th to be exact, we had the the Tyson plant fire that knocked out a the facility in Holcomb, Kansas. Uh, at the time, it was estimated that amounted to about five to six percent of the processing capacity in, uh, nationwide. And of course, that created a shock to the system. Immediately, we saw cutout price, beef cutout prices increase. Uh, we saw fed cattle prices decline. And uh, according to the USDA Agriculture Marketing Service at the time, in terms of the spread between those two, we broke a 28-year record and it, it reached just a bit over $67 a hundredweight. 
So we got through that. Things kind of settled down towards the end of the year, and, and we're getting back to into a normal pattern. Then, of course, we had the COVID uh, pandemic hit earlier this year in March. And uh, whereas the Tyson plant fire was more of a supply issue, a kink in the supply, we had a couple things happening, I think, in the COVID. Uh, one was that we had a demand issue immediately in March when we when we had the shutdown and the stay-at-home orders. Uh, there was a dramatic shift from uh, demand in the hotel, restaurant, and, and institutional sector to the grocery sector. So we saw a run on on groceries, uh, retail grocery stores. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that in just a second. Uh, then later, of course, we had the processing shutdown and the concerns with employee health and safety and, and the COVID outbreaks in the, in the meat processing plants. Uh, so that was more supply oriented. Of course, as a result of that, we saw uh, beef cutout prices just rocket in, in price. And uh, we saw thick cattle prices drop dramatically. And in a short order of time, we set a new record price spread. And again, according to the USDA, it touched $279 per hundredweight. So we saw some dramatic shocks and changes in these cattle markets almost overnight in some respect in, in what was happening. So then, then you complicate that with well, some other extenuating factors. Um, on the supply side, coming into 2020, we had a a lot of animals out there. We had a large cattle inventory. And so the processing plants needed to be operating at or near or over capacity. I know in some instances we had some plants operating, at least it showed over capacity. And so uh, as long as that was able to keep going, we were fine. We expected beef production to, to be up this year. And uh, we thought that we'd see uh, some increased exports and some consumption too. Um, so we had that out there that, that we had to work through that, that big inventory of animals. Then on the demand side, there was a couple of complicating factors there too. In the fire instance of the fire, it was in the leading up to the Labor Day demand, the last big grill out season, cookout season or opportunity of the season, most people think. We saw things ramping up to meet that demand. And of course, then we had this fire hit. And then obviously with the COVID again, the, the shift from the HRI sector to the grocery sector. Uh, I didn't realize this at the time, but there are dramatically different product mixes that go to those two sectors of demand. And there are different supply chains that meet those. And so it's just not that you can flip a switch and switch from one to the other in terms of meeting those different demands. And so that took a little while to figure that out. And then in the meantime, of course, uh, at different times and instances, we had some of the consumer panic buying and that in turn led to the retailers trying to restock. And, and so that that caused some issues as well. And then I think the last thing, and, and not to be uh, uh, set aside or, or overlooked, is the uncertainty all this created. Um, just, you know, markets don't like uncertainty and, and that this created a lot of uncertainty and we had no idea, particularly in COVID, we're still living through those challenges and the length and nature of all these challenges, I think also contributed this. So if you, if you look at economic theory and look at what happened and try to equate the, the theory to it, um, it, there, it makes some sense. The reaction that we saw in the markets, uh, it, there's some, their underlying economic theory would, would say, yeah, that, that makes sense is what happened. So ultimately in the, in the two shocks, we, it was dealing with less processing capacity. So when you have less processing capacity, you have less beef supply, 
In, on our demand and supply curves on the right, we see the, the supply curve shift upwards and to the, to the left. And so that results in higher cutout prices. And at the same time, our demand for cattle because of that less processing capacity, uh, the demand for cattle shifts downward and to the left and that results in lower prices. And you can see on the left that uh, that would increase the packer margins, which was, was something that we were seeing. And there was a, a lot of concerns in, in uh, in the process or in the producers because of those larger margins. But as you, the economic theory would suggest that the, the things and the changes that we saw in the markets uh, make some sense that way. So just uh, show you that uh, what the economic peer, uh, theory would suggest was true. Here we see this is the daily uh, box beef cutout price over time. It's, we've got three years on here, 2018, 19, and 20. You can see here, if you can see my cursor on the screen, this, this is when the, we saw the run up in, in the, the August fire, the jump up in beef cutout prices, as theory would suggest. Here's in, in March when we had the first wave of the demand shift. And then of course, the big, big spike in, in uh, later May and in early June because of the, the processing problems. So, and then here's the, the fed cattle prices for Nebraska. This is on a live basis. This is a negotiated price. You can see the same thing here in August of last year, the orange line is 2019. We saw a drop off in fed cattle prices. And then here back here again this year in the gray line is 2020, the drop off with uh, fed cattle prices in, in March. And then here's the April, May, June kind of time period as well. So uh, we did see those. And, and so that led to, again, the record cut out to, to live spread. And a lot of people were looking at that and, and wondering, okay, uh, even though the economics would suggest that that should occur and that should happen, uh, should it have happened to that extent? And if so, was there some other, if, if, if it not, then are there some other things happening that are going on? And uh, the other thing that, that caught people's attention during the time, uh, there, there are primarily four ways that get reported to the USDA AMS on the way cattle are purchased by the packers. Uh, there's negotiated cash sales, there's formula contracts, negotiated grids, and then uh, futures contracts and, and uh, the like. So the other thing that we saw happen in light of these two shocks was we saw a dramatic drop in the amount of negotiated cash purchases. Here's the, the Tyson fire right here. You can see the drop off there and then dramatic drop off here in April and, and early May because of uh, those shocks to the system. And, and uh, I just wanted to point that out and we'll, we'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit, uh, some of the concerns around that. But so the two big things that, that came out that caused a lot of concern were the spike in the price spread and then these drops in the negotiated transactions. So how did producers respond to all this? And, and uh, I'm not going to sit here and assert that all producers were, were thinking this, but there, there was uh, a lot of the feedback that we got from our members and that you saw publicly, I think, kind of were around these three ideas. But one is that the, the market was broken, that uh, it, it wasn't doing what it should have been doing, that uh, we resulted in fewer negotiated transactions. We saw beef prices skyrocket but they were getting less for their cattle. And so they didn't, that didn't make sense to them that uh, when you see the value of the beef go up, we should have seen the value of the cattle go up. 
And so there, there was a lot of concern around that, that the market wasn't functioning as it should. And then the other concern uh, is that the Packers are exerting power, that they're, they're used because we're, it's a concentrated industry, that they're taking advantage of that. And that's reflective in, in, in the record price spreads. That's uh, reflective in the gross margins. And, um, and then the, the, that they were using some of their former cattle contracts to, to manipulate the negotiated cash markets a little bit. And so we all see that in the, in the packer market power. And then lastly, a little bit about unfair foreign competition with imported beef coming in and how that was contributing to the problem. So these are kind of all areas that, that we were hearing a, a lot about. I, I will say, uh, a lot of these issues are nothing new. Uh, they've always been kind of underlying the surface a little bit. It just took uh, a couple of shocks to the system to, to get them to really bubble up. I, in part of my research on this issue, I found a USDA study, excuse me, from uh, like, I think it was like 1915 or 16, somewhere in that period, that was looking at the same issues about the uh, packer market power and the like. So it, those, these issues have been around for numerous years. And then, of course, on the political side, we had the political responses, and I include in this elected officials and other organizations, but we had a lot of things being thrown out there to try to address the problem. Probably the most popular one, or the one that's, that's caught a lot of attention, are these ideas of negotiated thresholds in the cash markets that you require, that the, the government require plants, a certain percentage of their purchases to be through the cash market. So uh, Chuck Grassley from Iowa introduced the 50% 14-day which meant that each packing plant had 50% of their purchases over the course, I think it was a week, had to be uh, through, uh, through cash purchases, and then those had to be delivered within a 14-day window. Uh, the other alternative of that was a 30% 14-day. There's a lot of call to enforce the antitrust laws that are in place, to call for investigations. The uh, Farm Bureau was doing that. Uh, reforming the Livestock Market Reporting Act, some, some areas there. Reinstate the mandatory cool, the country board and labeling, break up the packers, uh, even calls to halt cattle imports at certain points in time. So a lot of ideas that were thrown out there and, and a lot of uh, things that, that were kind of in the public discussion about uh, what do we do to respond to what happened because of these, these shocks to the market. So as a farm group, uh, we were sitting there thinking, okay, what, what do we do? Uh, we, we want to be responsive to our members' concerns, obviously. Uh, some of the ideas and things that were being thrown out as ways to address this were not consistent with our current positions and, and uh, what we call our policies on issues. Some of them were, some of them weren't. So uh, we, we try to set those positions once a year. And uh, so there was a thought that we need to relook at those positions and how do we go about doing that. We wanted to make sure that uh, whatever we did, we, we took the long-term viability of the industry into account. We wanted to make use due diligence and, and identify the proper issues and, and uh, target the solutions, if you will, uh, to try to make sure that we were uh, targeting the right issues and, and solutions. And then, of course, we didn't want to, we wanted to minimize our unintended consequences. And we didn't want to get two or three, four years down the road and, and think, wow, we shot ourselves in the foot there. So, so we were wrestling with what do we do? And, and um, the board decided to create a, a task force to look at these things. And, and uh, so organizations can use a variety of ways to, to respond to these. I know some organizations had meetings with a lot of, uh, a lot of members and discussion. Uh, we chose to go the task force route. 
And uh, I want to be clear that this task force was created. The, the board decided to do this last December after the Tyson fire, and but before COVID, and because there was enough uh, concerns and questions being raised at that time, and then COVID just added to the urgency of the of the issue. So our task force had 12 members. It was uh, folks from across the state. We had a different perspectives from the production side, if you will, of, of the industry, cow-calf members. Uh, there was some folks with auction markets on it, feedlot feeders, stockers. Uh, we had one person that, that works on value-added marketing. So we tried to bring a variety of perspectives. We charged them with uh, four tasks. One was to kind of examine the industry and, and the trends that are ongoing and then look at uh, our positions as a state organization, but also our national organization's positions to, to review those in, in light of the ongoing trends, and then make recommendations on, on where we should be on, on these issues. And then also um, talk a little bit, or if they had any ideas or suggestions about things that we could do as an organization to help. And for example, one of the things that came out of the, the recommendations was that there's a lot of opportunities and value added already. Uh, maybe we should put that up on our website, uh, all the different programs, a little information on the programs. Uh, we had a lot of presentations from a lot of different uh, people, ag economists, feedlot managers, different organizations, a restaurant owner, a consultant, and, and so we tried to bring in a lot of different perspectives and views. I did a lot of research in the background and along with another staff person and provide them some research and data and information as they wanted it on some of these issues. Uh, a couple things I, I, I before I talk a little bit about some of the issues that they tackled, uh, things that we learned through this process, and these are kind of maybe from my own perspective some things that, that, that kind of jumped out at me. That, but uh, the cattle and the beef markets are just amazing and, and they're quite complex. And uh, Daryl Peel from Oklahoma State spoke to our group and said that it could be the most complex set of markets that uh, in the world. And he's example of uh, you turn out a bull into the sand hills and two and a half years later, that ends up as a stake on a plate in New York City. And in that time period, it moves through the sec segments of cow, calf, stocker, feeder, processor, fabricator, wholesale, retailer, you name it, how many different people have a role, the marketers in that uh, getting, turning an animal into a product that's on a plate in New York City. And so when you think about it in that light, it, it is pretty amazing that, that how this all works together. The other thing is the, the north, what I'll call the north-south divide that we have in the industry. Uh, this, this was, I, I kind of knew it was there, but not to the extent, I guess, when I started looking into this. But if you drew a line at the Nebraska-Kansas border, the way the cattle industries operate north of that line versus south of that line is dramatically different. The cultures, the structures of the industries, the practices and how they market their animals, dramatically different. And I, we see that, I think, it playing out and manifesting itself in, in some of the, the political arena. And then uh, the consumer's rule, uh, it, it's ultimately, it's, if you want new money into the system, it's gotta come from the purchases and, and the people buying the products and they're demanding traceability and transparency and then international trade is, is a major part of that. So here's a listing of the issues that, that the group tackled. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these today. Uh, I'm just going to pick out a couple of them and talk a little bit about them. But it just gives you a flavor of uh, they narrowed it down to these six issues and, and tried to focus on those. Obviously, there's more that they could have tried to tackle, but this is what they, they looked at. 
Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is a little bit the Fed cattle markets because they spent a lot of time on this issue, and I think it was one of the more ones that, that they wanted to try to, to resolve or figure out some ideas on. And there's a couple of issues at play that, that were of concern. This, this chart comes from a study that was done by Ted Schroeder at K-State and some others for the USDA AMS, and it shows the percent of negotiated sales versus other kinds of, of marketing options over time since uh, 2005, but the red line are negotiated sales and then the purple line are formula sales. And you can see that uh, we've gone from negotiated sales between 50 to 60 percent of the market uh, 15 years ago to now it's between 20 and 30 percent. And the formula has just done the exact opposite. Uh, that has caused a lot of concern in, in the industry and in the producer sector because they view the, the price or the negotiated market as the ultimate in price discovery and price transparency. That, that's where you can get the most value in terms of knowing what's, what's happening in the market. So that, that issue is a big concern. And you can, but it, it's not quite as simple as just looking at the national, like I just showed you. This comes from uh, second quarter of this year. This is from the AMS. You can see here's the national numbers. Negotiated was about 23%, formula about 60%. But uh, you look here how the difference between Texas and, and Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Kansas, Texas had about 8% and an 83% as opposed to Nebraska, 40% and, and 50%. And Iowa's the same way. So that's one of the areas where you see a dramatic difference between uh, the Northern Plains and the Southern Plains. The other is um, that there are negotiated sales are, are uh, reported in two different time delivery seg segments. One is zero to 14 day and the next is 15 to 30 day. And interestingly, uh, most of the sales are in the zero to 14 day, 85% of those sales. But of the 15% that are not in that category, they're in the 15 to 30 day, uh, Nebraska and Iowa make up over two thirds of those. And so there's another little nuance and difference between how things happen between uh, the, the regions, which uh, I'm not sure why that's the case. But uh, some of the concerns then over the Fed cattle markets, uh, the trend of less cash sales, I think that less, it results in less price transparency and discovery. The formulas are often based, their base price is a cash price of some sort. And so as this, as this cash sales dwindle, we're basing those formulas on thinner markets. And the concern is, the, uh, another concern is potential for manipulation. For example, when the negotiated price dropped so low after the COVID, there was some thought that, uh, that obviously they're taking off the sales off or the purchases off the formula contracts that, that pushes down the price for uh, the cash trade, which then reflects back into the formula. So that's where the manipulation comes through and the concerns. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the recommendations. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to say these are not our positions. Uh, those positions will be cited at our meetings coming up in November through January. These are just the recommendations that the task force has thrown out there for, for our members and others to consider. So we're, we're not taking, we have not taken these positions. But the first one talks about exploring all means to increase cash sales. Um, they, they talked a lot about the, the mandatory approach, that, that the Grassley approach and others. They were split on that. They, they couldn't come to a consensus on that. And so ultimately there was some preference for the private market solutions like uh, 
uh, maybe uh, use somehow using blockchain technology or video or electronic markets, uh, uh, market makers, or some other ways of, of trying to increase the, the number of cash sales uh, to help in that price discovery area. Uh, on, on the mandatory thresholds, those that were supporting it like thought that the market was uh, broken, that we needed to have the government step in and, and try to correct things there. Others were concerned, had kind of the opposite. They, they made them a little nervous about the having government step into the markets and, and what might happen there. The other was that uh, we needed to, to have some broad industry discussions and bring in all the different perspectives to talk about the trends and, and how we can improve on that. And then this idea came from one of the feedlot managers they talked to about somehow trying to link cattle and box beef prices uh, through either the formulas or, or some way. The other, the other issue I want to talk a little bit about is packer market power. Of course, that's, that's an issue there. Uh, this shows the, the weekly wholesale farm price spread on a real basis. This came out of a working paper by uh, Jason Lusk and some others that, that was just, uh, I think, released a, a two or three weeks ago. But it kind of shows that, that the, the price spread, the real price spread over time has stayed fairly constant until we get here about 2015. And it bumps up a little bit, and it, but it's mostly constant. But you can see what it's done in the last two or three years. And uh, of course, the, the record jump, the just uh, it's almost hard to conceive that kind of <laughs> a jump uh, here lately. And, and so to a lot of producers, that's indicative of um, some greater market power or some manipulation going on. This kind of looks at the same thing, uh, actually got this idea from uh, from Elliot Dennis, we were communicating on some things and looking at the, the total farm to retail price spread. Uh, this is on a nominal basis, and but you can see the, the, the farm, the green line is the farm to retail spread, the red is the wholesale to retail, and then the blue again is the, the farm to wholesale. You can see it's been overall trending upwards over time. Most of that trend has been in the wholesale to, to uh, retail, but there's a little bit of an upward slope here and, and from 2015 on, it indicates that that spread is growing a little bit in, in the, the farm to wholesale. So, uh, so it, it's just indicative of, of uh, some concerns there, I guess. So uh, obviously the biggest concerns are we have uh, four companies that are controlling close to 80% of the, of the processing. Uh, that, that gives them the opportunity to exert some market power, manipulate and collude a lot of thought that the, the current laws aren't being forced adequately, that there needs to be more effort in that way. And the overall concern is that the producers are getting less of the retail dollars. And, and uh, the other concern that kind of uh, come up a little bit was uh, the foreign ownership of the processing sector. And there was a little bit of concern about that too. So uh, I did a little bit of research in this area and it's kind of interesting uh, uh, what you find. I, 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 I want to do some more and dig into it a little deeper, but obviously the counterfeits of scales are, are really driving the size and scale of these processing facilities. I think the largest ones, uh, what I read, are they can process an animal for somewhere between $250 to $300 per animal, but then you get to the smaller ones and you're looking at $700 to $800 per animal. So there, there's quite a bit of economies to scale there. Uh, Daryl Peel, again, at Oklahoma State on a webinar series that North Dakota put on said that the, there's a research that shows that they do have, Packers do have market power and they'll occasionally exert it. He, he didn't quote exactly the research, but they, he mentioned that on that. 
which I shared with our group. And then um, the paper I just mentioned by Jason Lusk and some others, they, they looked at a model of packer net margins or created one and, and uh, they found that, that the ratio between uh, the cutout price and the, I'm sorry, between the live price, the animal price, cattle price and the cutout price was, was uh, that ratio was similar to what you get out of the dressing percentage. And so they, they thought that was kind of suggestive of, of a competitive markets. And then there's Neville Spear has, has done some work in this area and showed that there's on an annual basis over time, there's no little relationship between packer and cow calf or feedlot returns. And so we shared that all with the group. Again, uh, these are just the recommendations. These, these aren't our positions, but uh, a couple things that came out of a USDA AMS report said that the USDA needed some more enforcement tours and they wanted to have a beef contract library. So that the group liked those ideas. Uh, they wanted the, the USDA and the Department of Justice to aggressively enforce the existing laws and certainly discourage further concentration and then undertake vigilant monitoring to, to assure that the competition does exist in the, in the purchase of fed cattle. And then the other idea came out was that the USDA should track foreign ownership of, of the process in the processing industry. Um, it, it was said that they do on, on land, agricultural land, they'll track that. And so they should do that on, on uh, not only processing, but other segments of the, of the uh, beef and, and cattle industry. So I'm going to quit with that. And, and uh, I, this, well, I got one more slide after this, but well, when you talk about the future of the cattle industry, uh, it, who knows? I mean, everybody points different directions. Uh, uh, I picked this because it says economics. It doesn't say ag, ag economics department. So uh, I know, Larry, you guys always point in the same direction. So, uh, but uh, I thought this was good. I, I guess the last thing I want to leave you with, uh, in the course of the, the work that the task force did, we, there's some trends that are out there that I think are going to continue. Um, obviously, continued concentration is going to go. Uh, more non-agriculture ownership, you just think of the transition that's going on, mixed enterprises at a larger scale, uh, consumer transparency, we already talked about that. Uh, the competition from other protein sources, not only from a beef standpoint, pork and, and poultry, but when you look at the non-meat alternatives that are there. And then uh, Walmart now is kind of integrating backward a little bit into the beef sector. Uh, I think that's gonna continue. And then obviously the new technologies that are all out there. So I, I think these are some of the driving trends that will determine the future of the, of the cattle industry, not only in the state of Nebraska, but uh, in the country as well. So I uh, apologize, Larry, I took a little longer than I planned on, so, but uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions and, and, uh, and or just have a discussion. Uh, the timing was perfect, Jay. Thanks so much for sharing uh, the results of your task force with us, it's very interesting. We do have a couple of questions so far. The first one, could you please further explain the potential for manipulation by processors? You said that when negotiated price drops so low after COVID, some thought purchases pushed down for cash trade, which reflects back in the formula. Could you please go over that again? Yeah, I'll, uh, let me go back to that, that one slide. So the concern was a lot of the, the formula cattle are based on the cash price. And sometimes it's a weekly average, sometimes it's the top of the market uh, for a week. Uh, 
sometimes it's a five area weighted average. And so the, the concern that was expressed was when, when we get here where negotiated sales are dropping so low, what, what's happening is the processor, the packer who has contracts with, with feedlots under a formal arrangement are, are taking, meeting those obligations, taking those cattle. And they are not out then in the negotiated market purchasing cattle. And so that drives down the price of the cattle, not only in, in the cash segment of the negotiated cash market, but then that turn in reflects to, it reflects in the formula prices, the base prices that the formulas are, are using. And so um, the, the, the concern is that if packers, for whatever reason, feel like they want to try to drive the prices down, they can turn away from their, uh, their packer or their formula contracts and turn around and, and just take, or they could take the cattle into the formula contracts, don't go and negotiate it, and it'll end up in a, in a, a better deal for them. Uh, so that, that's the concern. Uh, I, I am... In my study and my look on this, I, I haven't seen anybody look at that issue to see whether that's true or not, or whether that is happening, or if anything nefarious is going on. But that's the concern that was expressed. Right. Great. Next question: Do you think the cattle market has been impacted at all by the uh, burgeoning uh, of meatless meat sales? Uh, my sense is, thus far. It hasn't to a great extent. Um, I, when you look at those alternatives that are there right now, there's such a small segment of the overall consumption. And I, my sense is that a lot of folks that are, are trying those are folks that probably shy away from eating meats and beef anyway. Uh, so thus far, I, I haven't seen it. Um, and and uh, I, 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 they'll, they'll capture, I think, a certain segment of, of the market, but I, I don't see it becoming a, a huge issue for the cattle and, and the beef industry in, in the near future anyway. All right. Thank you. Next question. How did the, how did the discussion go regarding MCOOL? Uh, a great question. That uh, obviously there's a lot of interest in that and there, uh, there's a lot of folks that, that uh, supported that measure when it was in place and uh, that would like to see it put back in place. Uh, the, ultimately the, the recommendation that came out of the task force was if something is going to be the, if something is going to be labeled as product of the United States, that it should, it should be completely derived from animals that are born, raised, and processed in the United States. And so that was their way of, of trying to protect that label. And if somebody wanted to try to find a market uh, for product that was uh, U.S. derived, they could, they, there would be some confidence that label meant that. They, they were hesitant. Uh, there were a lot of concern about our trade relations and the importance of exports in the beef markets. And um, so they didn't want it to, I think, go down the M-Cool route again. Because of that, they, they were fearful what that means for our, our export markets and, and future trade. Great. 
Another question, what do you think are the three biggest concerns for cattle ranchers in Nebraska currently? Uh, well, I, I think underlying all of this right now is, is profitability. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, we saw some, some uh, well, a falling off or dwindling of, of income and profitability since uh, 14 and 15. When we, we coming off the drought, we were, we were building, we had short supplies and we were building a cow herd and, and prices were good. And so I think the underlying concern of, of everything right now is uh, is the profitability and the sustainability of their operations. I think secondly is that I would probably tap into the concern about the markets in the sense that uh, are the markets actually valuing their product like it should be and, and is there uh, price discovery and transparency like there should be. And then um, lastly, I, I, I think out there is uh, the whole notion of the alternative proteins and where that's headed and where, where we're going and and uh, it, what's, what's the future hold in that regard in terms of consumer demand and, and the like. All right. Going back to your presentation, how will this affect the rental contracts between owners and operators of farms with cattle barns? Um, you know, that, that's a great question. I, I would think, but let me answer that a couple ways. Um, first, I, I noted one of the trends is I think we're going to see non-ag a greater share of, of the ranches and the like be non-ag owners. So you're going to see more and more folks managing those operations, ranch managers and, and the like. And, and that came from a gentleman that's in Montana, that, that a consultant that, that uh, visited with the group, and he said he's seeing it all over, and it, it kind of stuck in, in my mind. And so uh, for those that don't go the farm manager route, then we'll have the rental issues. And I, I would suspect that, um, uh, actually, we it kind of interesting, we've seen pasture ground, the pasture rents actually increase in value over the last few years. Um, and I think that might be due to the, the number of animals out there versus the amount of ground. But I, I'm guessing given the state of the markets right now, we're going to see a pullback a little bit on, on the rental values and, and see things trying to drift, drift sideways or downwards a little bit, it would be my sense. All right. Uh, how would you explain the benefits of Senator Fisher's proposed legislation, which is the Cattle Market Transparency Act of 2020, and how it will prevent future occurrences of the extreme market swings we experienced this past year? Um, a great question. Uh, I, I think, it, it, as I understand, there are four parts to our legislation, um, and, and I'm testing my memory here, but one dealt with the confidentiality requirements of, of uh, the reporting, livestock reporting issue, and then another, the creation of a library, a beef library that would, uh, where contracts and, and formulas would be, would be deposited and then people could look at that. Uh, and then there's one other part, but, but on those, those couple parts and things, uh, I, I think those are good, um, good steps in the right direction in terms of, 
uh, trying to get, particularly on the confidentiality side, trying to get more transactions that are reported and so we can contribute to that price discovery and, and transparency. And then the beef contract library, of course, more information you have out there, the better off you are. The, probably one of the critical pieces is uh, she's looking at the negotiated thresholds that I described and uh, applying them on a regional basis. And she's not setting it into law. She's allowing USDA to do it through regulation, but I think provides some more flexibility. Uh, that That's a kind of a tricky issue. I, I think the overall goal is to provide some transparency and discovery in the market, which is good. But I don't see that help in terms of the what we saw in the markets due to the shocks of COVID and the Tyson fire. Uh, those could still occur and those would still happen. Uh, it just might mean that you have a little more uh, information and, and discovery out in the market. All right. So, Jay, do you think the 5014 mandate harms the Nebraska cash sales and causes less formula pricing? I, I, based on the history and the experience in, in uh, Nebraska, where we've run typically on negotiated transactions between 35 to, to 40%, somewhere in that range, uh, it, would, it would require uh, greater negotiated transactions. And so I, I tend to think of it in, in this terms, there, there's an economic reason why uh, formula contracts are being used. And, and uh, Dr. Stephen Kuntz from Colorado State talked about this, that uh, the folks that he's talked to that use formulas, they generally see a value anywhere from $25 to $40 a head. And the reason is it's just a lower transaction costs and, and uh, uh, some lower or more efficiencies in that. And so I, I say that because if, if you're gonna require a certain threshold, you're gonna force people to move away from that and it's gonna put some additional costs into the industry. And how does, is that additional cost, is it worth the extra price discovery and the transparency that you get from the negotiated transactions. And I think that's something that we all need to weigh in the trade-offs on that. And so it definitely would have an impact on Nebraska. I, it, it's interesting, I think the 14-day window might have a little bit of impact too, as, as I mentioned. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Nebraska uh, and Iowa together are two-thirds of that 15 to 30-day window, and that would change that as well too. So it definitely has some implications. Yeah. Well, Jay, that looks like the end of our uh, questions today. So thank you very much. And thank you everyone for joining with us today. This has been a special Nebraska Farmcast presentation of Extension Farm and Ranch Management in the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To view or listen to more archived webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications to guide your decision-making, visit farm.unl.edu.